Hello and welcome to Series 6 of the Bible and Me podcast by Preset Ministries. We hope this podcast can bless you in your day-to-day life as you listen to a range of testimonies about God's faithfulness within the lives of so many. The views expressed in this podcast don't necessarily reflect that of Preset Ministries UK. But without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I am very privileged uh, to be welcoming Rob Parsons, uh, OBE, to the program today. Rob was born and raised in Cardiff in Wales. Uh, On leaving college, he taught English literature uh, and then retrained as a lawyer. Uh, In 1988, Rob left his law firm to start Care for the Family, which today has numerous staff members and runs uh, numerous projects across the country. Rob has written more than 20 books, uh, including the Sunday Times business bestseller, The Heart of Success, a groundbreaking book on work-life balance. Uh, He was also instrumental in the publication of Daddy's Working Away, a resource for fathers in prison, which is used in prisons across the United Kingdom. Rob is married to Diane. Uh, They have two grown children, Katie and Lloyd, and I understand five grandchildren. Uh, I'm very envious, Rob, I have to tell you. Uh, Rob enjoys reading, um, spending time around uh, Cardiff, and uh, spending time in their home church. So, Rob, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Nigel. It's lovely to be with you. Yeah, now, Rob, give us a sense of your uh, upbringing and how you came to faith in Christ and why, why you follow Jesus. Um, well, um, our home was uh, was very humble. Um, Mum was a, uh, an office cleaner. Dad was a postman. We lived in a tiny little terraced house in Cardiff with no running hot water, inside toilet, bathroom, or even toilet paper. I, I don't even ask. Uh, except <laughs> even now I can't look at a copy of the South Wales Echo without a million memories coming uh, uh, flooding back. And my parents didn't go uh, to church. But on the corner of my little street was a gospel hall, Macintosh Gospel Hall. And one day, Miss Williams uh, from that little church uh, knocked on every door in our street and asked the adults that opened the door the same question, would any little boys or girls in this house like to come to Sunday school? And my mother said, he'd like to go. (laughs) And uh, Miss Williams took me by the hand and she led me down the street and into the world of of Sunday school. And I went to that little church from the time I was four uh, right into my late 20s. In fact, I I walked down that street when I was 22 years old to become married in that little church. And it was there that somebody told me of God's love and Jesus' death for me and his resurrection for me. And and um, I can remember that uh, once a year they used to take the, the boys to a camp in the Gower uh, for about 10 days. And I can remember kneeling in a muddy field in, in that uh, camp and and asking Christ to become my saviour and, and saying I wanted to follow him. So that's it began. It began that little brethren assembly on the mm. corner of my street. Mm, wonderful. And what, what is it about Jesus that sort of captivated you and led you on a journey to want to follow him? Well, I was, I, was, I was young. I was 12 years old then, and there were plenty of hiccups. Perhaps we can, we can talk about them uh, uh, later on. But no, I think it was, this, it was the very simple message that God loved me, 
that uh, that he cared for me, that Christ had died for me. Mm-hmm. And, and these people, you know, um, they were unusual in some ways. They had some little rules and regulations that were a bit strange, uh, but they did love and that they exuded love and care. And I think I saw something of the love of God in them, and that touched me deeply. Mm, wonderful, wonderful. Now, um, <clears throat> I understand that there was a local Christian man called Arthur uh, Tovey who was very important uh, in your life uh, mm. growing up. Why, why was that? Well, what happened was um, I wasn't very good at school. I didn't really understand school. Um, we only had a couple of books in our home. I wasn't academic. I managed to pass the... The, uh, the exam for the grammar school, but I, I wasn't uh, academic. In fact, when I was 14, my school report records the fact that there were 34 kids in my class and I've come uh, 34. <laughs> my, my teacher writes, and I could show you the report, it's in one of my books, reprinted, uh, a disgraceful result. He's making no use of what little ability he has. I don't argue with that. So I'm about 14 or 15 years old, and I'm about to drop out of school. And by now, I'm about to drop out of church because I've kind of lost a bit of interest. And, and all I want to do is be a rock and roll singer. In fact, we started a band called the Blue Jets. Um, uh, none of us really made it. Not surprising. We spent most of our time not practicing, but thinking <laughs> of names for our group. But our drummer did. Our drummer became... Uh, um, uh, a drummer for a group called Amen Corner, a Welsh group that had a couple of number one hits, and he ended up drumming for the Bee Gees. So he made it, but oh, wow. we, we, we didn't. All I wanted was to be a rock and roll singer. About to drop out of school, about to drop out of church, and I'm walking down the road uh, one day with a guitar over my shoulder and 10 embassy cigarettes in my back pocket, and an older man from church, Arthur Tovey, came up to me. And uh, Arthur and his wife were poor. They lived in two rooms in his mother's house. Arthur and his wife were told at that time they could not have children of their own. Arthur had a very bad speech impediment. Arthur had never passed an academic examination. But they loved kids. And he said to me, Rob, next uh, Wednesday in our home, Margaret and I have a little Bible study for teenagers. Would you like to come? And when all you want to do is be a rock and roll singer, uh, a Bible study on a Wednesday night is not the greatest offer (laughs) you've ever had, Nigel. But for some reason I said, yes. And he was a brilliant psychologist. He taught us the Bible as best he could for 25 minutes. And then he got a a little bit of hardboard. He put on top of the dining table and we played ping pong. And then with what little money he had, he bought us fish and chips. And and as we were coming back from the chip shop and the vinegar was seeping through the paper, Margaret had the tea brewing. Nigel, when you walked into Arthur and Margaret's home, you felt like a king. No matter what teacher said about you, Arthur told you you were special, that God had given you gifts, that he believed in you. If you missed that evening, he'd come hunting you down. Mm. And and he taught us the Bible week by week, an old brethren Bible study course called Primary Truths. And uh, and again, it was a bit unusual. There were questions at the back, for example, that you had to tick things that were worldly to do on a Sunday and (laughs) things that weren't. So walking in a park wasn't. Um, I think watching television was. I can't quite remember, to be honest. But, but nevertheless, this Bible got into my soul and my spirit. And, and when I was about um, 17, 
he, he said to me, um, do you ever take part in debates in school or public speaking? And I said, no, Arthur, I don't even put my hand up in class. He said, well, I think God has given you a gift of public speaking and I'm going to teach you. Hmm. That was scary. He was the worst public speaker you've <laughs> ever heard in your life. But he did teach me, first of all, to teach the parable of the prodigal son to children, and then later to do what he called give my testimony in front of adults in little brethren assemblies. And I began to, uh, to speak. Mm. I'm not sure how it happened, but by the time I was uh, in my early 30s, I was a joint senior part of a ten-office legal practice. I was lecturing all over the place. And, and the Law Society of England and Wales asked me to be their keynote speaker in front of a thousand lawyers in Vienna, or at least one of the keynote speakers. And before I went on stage, I rang Arthur. Hmm. I remember it now. It was a cold night in Vienna. I'm about to go on stage, and I decided to ring him. Uh, and I rang him. I said, Arthur, I'm about to go on stage. A thousand lawyers out there. You taught me to do this. He said, did I? <laughs> and a couple of years after that, I was promoting one of my books in Colorado Springs in America and in a radio uh, setting. And um, the, the DJ or, or the host, rather like this, um, got him live on air as a surprise to me from his home in Cardiff. Mm. And at the end of the interview, said to him, well, what do you think of the boy who came to your Bible class? He said, I'm proud of him. <laughs> I cried on air. He died a couple of years ago, Nigel, and I went to see him in hospital. The last time I saw him, he was practically comatose, but I think he heard me. I put my lips next to his ear, and I said, Arthur, thank you. Mm. You changed my life, and I kissed him. Mm. And so Arthur took the Bible, and he taught me as best he could from it. He put into my hand this powerful book, that could could change people's lives, and uh, and it changed my life. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Now, after leaving college, you taught uh, English literature. Yeah, and then you retrained as a lawyer. Mm. I, I mean, what led you to switch from teaching English literature to becoming a lawyer? Well, I uh, I'd managed to to. Get to teacher training college, and I was uh, about to go for my first job as a teacher. And uh, Arthur Tovey asked me to speak to a group of young people one night in church. And at the back was a lawyer watching, an older man watching. And he came up to me afterwards and said, uh, I'd like you to join my law practice. Um, for me, that was like saying you could walk on the moon. It was impossible. And I, and I said, why, why do you, he said, uh, you'll be, I'd like you to become a lawyer and work with me. Hmm. Uh, and I said, we don't have any money. He said, no, I'll pay for you to go through law college. And I went home. My dad was shaving, postman, as I say, he's about to go on the afternoon shift. I said, dad, I met this guy. He wants me to become a lawyer. He's going to pay for me to go through law school. And I remember him saying to me, son, people like us don't become uh, solicitors. And I don't think he was being sarcastic. Nigel, I honestly think he, he probably wanted to keep me from the pain of failure. But I decided to teach for a year, and I loved it, and mm. I must have been okay at it. They offered me some promotion. Um, but I thought, no, I'll give law a crack. We damn, my wife and I did a lot of work with young people in our homes and in the church anyway by then. And for some reason, I managed to pass all the exams first time. And, I, and, and John and I built this law practice up together till it was... Um, it was quite big, really. And, and in fact, we had a separate company that advised lawyers all across the United Kingdom mm -hmm. on practice management and expansion. We used to take the London Hilton on Park Lane and we'd fill it with a couple hundred lawyers and, and uh, talk to them. And so it was an unusual experience, and I'm not incredible. exactly sure how it happened. Yeah, incredible. Now, by the 1980s, you were uh, 
a very successful legal consultant. Uh, and in 1986, you attended a meeting uh, between James Dobson and a group of British church leaders, which was to have a huge impact uh, on your life. So I've got two questions related to that. What took you to that meeting in the first place? And why, why was it so significant? Yeah, I got invited because I was uh, on the board of a, of, of a charity that, that, that had been involved with inviting uh, James Dobson over care. And um, uh, I, I listened to him, uh, focus on the family. We're doing a lot of work in the area of parenting and, and marriage. And I'd heard um, Dr. Dobson speak on a film series years before called Focus on the Family Film Series. And it was... Uh, it was uh, uh, absolutely fascinating. And basically, he said, look, is anything that we're doing in the States in the area of parenting and marriage helpful in Britain? And the consensus of opinion amongst the church leaders said, yes, but it needs to have a British face. And, mm. and, and, and so um, they never did establish focus on the family in, in Britain. Um, but shortly after that, care for the family uh, began. And I, bega- I became his first, uh, his first director. Really? Um, what was it about that aspect of caring for the family what what was it that caught your attention I mean was it something that was going on in your own life or your own experience you said you know what this is something that I can I can um, have an impact on yeah Um, I mean was God God leading you in any way yeah so our three values in care of the family are these generosity uh, honor the least and vulnerability and vulnerability has been key. Um, really, I've learned that uh, uh, through through life itself. Shortly after my son Lloyd was born, my wife uh, became uh, quite ill. Her immune system crashed. She went through a quite a depressive illness. And I remember those were hard times. I remember uh, Diane saying to me one day when she woke up on an autumn morning, darling, I don't think I can cope anymore. And I, I realized that although I was very busy and more successful than I've dreamt of being, I was too busy. And I was putting pressure on Diane and the family. And, and boy, we learned deep lessons at that time. I mean, I was a lawyer. People came to me. I mm. fixed things. I made it right. But I couldn't make this right. And I remember kneeling in the darkness one night with another leader from our church and, and praying and thinking, gosh, this is not how I thought life would be. And and asking God if he would help us through this time. And then a few years after that, Diane said to me, Rob, um, do you think we could start a little group in our home for those who have been through emotional trauma, for those who've perhaps had a faith and lost it, those going through tough times? Mm. And we did, and we called it For Strugglers, For Strugglers. And all I can tell you is that people practically broke our door down to get into that little Bible study group. Mm. I remember opening the door one night and there was a GP standing there. Our church had many house groups, probably 15 or 20. And I said, um, you've probably come to the wrong house group. No, no, he said, I'm a struggle. I'd like to come. Mm. And we began to share, Dan and I, not out of strength, but out of weakness. I, I, I will never forget a very bright social worker came, a woman, and she wasn't a Christian. She was very cynical week after week and... And I can remember saying to Jill, Jill, Dan and I are going through a bit of a tough time at the moment. Um, she said, no, no, you're fine. And I remember one night after she'd gone, we're washing up afterwards, and I said to Dan, I doubt Jill will ever come to faith in Christ. And that night, about midnight, 
My phone rang. I was in bed and it was Jill. And she said, I have met him. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> she said, I was driving home across the mountain. I was on my own in the car. And I was filled with an incredible sense of forgiveness towards my family. And, and I felt his presence. My heart is physically hurting. Will it be like this tomorrow? I said, I don't know. You're very fortunate. It's never, it's never happened to me. And Jill came to faith in Christ that night. And, and she has served God for all the years since then. She's one of our closest friends. Mm. But what Dan and I discovered was that although people need answers, as much as answers, they need to know they're not alone. And, and in the legal practice and in the church where we attended, which was on a vast housing estate, it's grown to twice, three times the size now, but even then it was 20,000 people. Mm. We saw family breakdown all the time. And we saw that there were lots of charities coming to the bottom of the cliff and putting families together when they were broken. And they were doing a great job. But I wanted to do that and put a fence at the top of the cliff. I wanted to say to people, everybody goes through tough times in their marriage, in their parenting. Put strength into your relationships while they're strong, if you possibly can. And I wanted to work in prevention, not just crisis. Mm. And so that amalgam of experience, vulnerability, our own experience, my experience in the legal practice, in the local church, uh, led to us uh, forming Care for the Family. And yes, we did feel led by God to do it. Mm. And I left the legal practice and we, we began in just a, a couple of rooms above one of the branch offices that the law practice gave me. Really? And were you still in touch with Focus on the Family at all? I mean, was there a link there or, or not really? There, there was a link, but we've been totally separate, uh, totally separate charities uh, all, the, all that time. Jim Daly, of course, is the new president. Uh, Jim Dobson retired, I think, probably 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, but the, yeah. Mm. Give us a taste of uh, the work of Care for the Family. What is at its heart uh, what impact does uh, Care for the Family have on families up and down the country? Now, I know that's a huge question, mm. and, of course, it's multifaceted. Mm. Uh, but for those that maybe don't know much about the organization, I'd just love them to hear um, what you do, the services you offer, and the impact it's having. Yeah. Well, we have, uh, I suppose, three main pillars, marriage and relationships, parenting, bereavement. Let me take bereavement first. If you've lost a child through whatever, accident, sickness, uh, whatever, we will put you in touch with one of our befrienders who has also lost a child, but perhaps 10 or 15 years ago, and they will help you walk that road. I spoke uh, not long ago with a mum whose son had just uh, uh, died after just one, taking one ecstasy tablet. Mm. And I'm pretty sure it was just one. And, uh, and I put her in touch with a, a family that had gone through that 15 years ago. And, and we'll, we'll be there for them. We, we hold weekends where bereaved parents come. Uh, I was talking to somebody, I'll never forget it, uh, after one of our bereaved parents' weekends, residential. And, and I talked to the guy who ran it, and I said, how did it go? He said, oh, well, it was an incredible time. He said, on the Friday, uh, people are sat in the room, about 30 or 40 people. The men have their arms folded as if to say, it's a waste of time. We should, they can't give us our child back. Why, we should leave now. Mm. And I stand and tell them about losing our boy when he was 22. And I tell them that I used to just walk in the rain and cry. And I didn't want to take my life, but I didn't want to live either. And I had a great relationship with my wife, but she couldn't get near me. And people would say to me, 
but Peter, time will heal. He said, but it doesn't heal. It's not meant to heal. It gets easier, but it doesn't heal. And he said, the really foolish ones would say, but you know what, Peter, at least you've got three other great kids. Mm. And I would say, I know, but I want him. And he said, the fascinating thing is on the Sunday afternoon, people came up to me and they had opened like flowers. And I hadn't given them any easy answers, no clever strategies, just this incredible knowledge that others have walked this path, discovered what we call a new normal. It'll never be the same again, but a new normal, and given them hope that they can come through it too. And then we work with, with partners who have lost a, a partner early in life, perhaps 50 years and, and younger, and we'll help support them. And, and we run courses for churches called Bereavement Care Awareness to help local churches um, run and support, uh, uh, run courses and support people in their community that are bereaved. Care for the Family has a Christian foundation. We're very clearly a Christian uh, charity, but we work with the world and his wife. Um, and so the other day in one of our parenting courses, there were two women in burkas in the front row, and I'm glad of that. We'll, we'll work with anybody, and we want to reach out. But, but that's our identity. That's who we are. Mm. And then the area of marriage, we produce podcasts, we produce books, we produce seminars uh, uh, to, uh, to strengthen marriage. Sometimes we're involved in policy. Catherine Hill, our UK director, is sometimes sat around uh, uh, government tables advising. Uh, and, and, and then um, we work in the area particularly of parenting, general parenting, but also parenting, helping those who have children with special needs or additional needs. Um, so we're, we're, we're very strong there. But we do have a Christian uh, uh, ethos, and we about four years ago we began a new initiative called Raising Faith for Christian Parents to give them the confidence to help pass faith on to their children. Hmm. A lot of Christian parents don't seem to have that confidence. How do you do that? So we're putting enormous resources into that, um, mm. uh, that, at, the, that at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. Why, why do you think God has grown uh, care for the family over these years. I mean, I remember uh, Molly and I, we were married in 1988 mm. um, and we did your Marriage Matters course, video mm. course that's run out of church. I remember it so well. Yeah. Um, but it's grown, hasn't it? Around mm. Why do you think God has done that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, oh, only he can turn the water into wine. And I honestly don't know. How could I know? I've, I've, I, I always pinch myself. I think, well, how did it happen? Mm. Why has it happened? And, and we just don't, we just don't know. I mean, we're we're a big organisation. We have eighty-five plus staff. We have five offices. We have multiplicity of programmes. Uh, and when I get to heaven, I'll find out whether that pleased God or whether it didn't. Sometimes growth is not an indication that, mm. you know, things sometimes, <clears throat> and there are smaller organizations, sometimes a struggling little church somewhere, and they think God is not pleased with me. No, you don't know that. Mm. You don't know that. But, but you, each of us has to do each day what we believe um, we're meant to do. Yeah, and then we have to leave it to him. <laughs> and, and if we don't do that, then in difficult times, we'll think that he doesn't love us, so he's not pleased with us. And that's not true either. We have to learn to say with the old prophet, though the fruit tree shall not blossom and there be no fruit on the vine. What if we were to sit here and you were to say to me, you know what, Rob, you began in 1988 with just two of you. Now there's only one of you. <laughs> what a disaster. Well, maybe, maybe not. We just don't know. 
Yeah. But I thank God for what he's done. Yeah, wonderful. Fantastic. Um, what's it been like working with your wife, Diane, over the years? It's been brilliant. Uh, Di is uh, the most honest woman I know, and that's always been scary. <laughs> and in the original, you know, in the early years, we just did seminars together. Yeah. And, and um, mm. we shared very openly, and, and so that's been great. And then... Diane said to me some time ago, you know what, Rob, I'm coming off the speaking, kind of uh, being out on the road so much. I want to spend more time at home. Diane's heart really is to speak to women one by one, yeah. uh, just one to one. And she's got our home is full of people that come in uh, <laughs> to talk to uh, talk to Diane. And the kids, you know, Nigel, have a little joke. We're, we're in a restaurant and Diane will be ordering a cup of coffee and she'll be talking to the waitress and they'll say, oh, here we go. And pretty soon that waitress will get a phone number or she'll be turning up yeah. at our home or she'll get a book or something. And yeah. and so it's been fun working with with uh, yeah. with Diane and I, I've been grateful yeah, for that. Wonderful. Now you're a dad, but you're also a granddad. I am, five grandkids. And what's it like being a granddad? It's great. I mean, people say to you, it, it, everything people say about it is true, I think. <laughs> if I'd known grandkids were so much fun, I'd have had them first. Um, and, and, and they're all different. And it, somebody once said, one psychologist said, it's, an, it's, a least, it's a less emotionally complicated relationship. Because you can normally, not every grandparent, some grandparents, for goodness sake, have the main care of yeah. their grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. And there are plenty of grandparents mm. like that. Mm. But for most grandparents, you can do give them back. And, and, and you know, you can, well, spoil them is perhaps the wrong <laughs> word, but, but you can get away with things you can't do when you're living with them 24 hours a day. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I heard one of my grandkids say the other day, isn't Pops crazy? And I love that. <laughs> Now, um, you have written uh, many books. Uh, I, I remember myself reading The 60-Minute Father, which mm. had a huge impact on, on me, uh, having had three sons. Um, you sold over, I don't know, a million copies in, in many languages. Um, do you have a favourite at all of any of those? Uh, one that you'd look back and think, well, you know what, that, that really was something that is my favourite book or... or or you're not in a well, position to say. Well, you know, that. they're all they're all they're all different, and um, I think I've written I think I've written 25 books now, and and the interesting thing about writing is you go and see a publisher after you've written a book, and you want to know how your book is doing, how your baby's doing, <laughs> and they want to know if you're pregnant. <laughs> so 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 writing books is an interesting thing. The 60 Minute Father was is the shortest book I've ever written. It's 18 and a half thousand words. But that book sold a quarter million copies all across the world. And, and it's just lessons I, of my early fatherhood, mm. a lot of mistakes I felt I'd, I'd made. I quote that old song in there, uh, Cats in the Cradle. My child arrived the other day, came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk when I was away. But I'm grateful to God that I learned those lessons while they were pretty small and, and changed my life. I, I enjoyed that book. And, and then some time ago, I wrote a book called The Wisdom House. Um, in my study, I've got two big old leather armchairs. I, I sit in the one to the right of the fireplace. And suddenly, I imagined in my mind's eye my five grandchildren, not as the little ones they are now, all under 10, 10 and under, mm -hmm. but grown men and women. And they came and sat in that other armchair. Somebody had broken their heart or trod all of their dreams or, or they were tired of trying to be somebody they couldn't be just to please somebody else. And we would talk long into the night. 
When I was a little boy, um, my uh, mother used to tell me a story of a land far away, where as people got older, they wrote a life lesson on a scroll. And they kept those scrolls in a hut in the center of the village. And every so often, the village elders would gather people around and they'd read those life lessons to them. And they called that place the Wisdom House. And I wanted to create for my grandkids a Wisdom House. Imagine them in that chair, things I want to say to them. I want to pick that book up long after I'm gone. So, so I wrote that and I enjoyed writing that. Mm. But if you ask me to, to just pick one, and it may not be my favorite, but if I could have only written one, mm. it'd be another slim volume called Bringing Home the Prodigals. Bringing Home the Prodigals. Uh, I have gone all over the world with that message. I've preached that message in huts in jungles and in concert halls in New York. Um, the simple message of that story of Jesus. You know, many parents, Nigel, their hearts are breaking over their prodigals. When, when our kids are young, we think if we do it all, if we read all the books, if we do all the stuff, mm. then it will all turn out fine. But sometimes it doesn't. However you interpret the creation story, Adam and Eve had the perfect father and the perfect environment. And it mm. doesn't get much better than that. Mm. But they went away, their father didn't want them to go. I know there's that lovely verse in the book of Proverbs, bring up a child in the way he should go and when he's old he won't depart me. But it's not a guarantee. If you've got three perfect kids, you think it's a guarantee, but it's not. It's a general principle. Most of the Bible is God the perfect parent saying to his children, how come you went away and didn't want you to go? And one thing I've said to parents all over the world, sometimes you have to lay down the guilt. It's not that you have been a perfect mother or father, but you probably gave it your best shot. Mm. And I thank God where my kids are now, but there's been plenty of tears and plenty of pain. Mm. And I, I wrote that book to touch people's hearts and give mm. them hope. So if I could only pick one, I think I'd pick And for those one. parents that may be listening to this now who have got kids who are, mm. um, I don't know, away from the Lord, they're, yeah. they're, they're in some way they're upset with them, or, or mm. what, what words would you encourage them with? Well, you know, a couple of things, really. First of all, some of our so-called prodigals are not as far from God as we think. They're a million miles from our particular Christian culture, but that never was the big deal. They're not quite so far from God as we think. Hmm. And, and sometimes we have to understand that, that even if they are, that ultimately prayer is all we've got. Um, shortly after I wrote um, the book, Bringing Home the Prodigals, a woman wrote to me, she said, my daughter left us when she was 18 and turned her back on her family and on God. We didn't see her for six years. We didn't know whether she was alive or dead. And she said, as I put the lights out at night, I'd say to my husband, leave the porch light on. And she said, every Christmas, I used to put a little Christmas tree outside the front door, the little tree we used to put there when she was a little girl. And she said, Rob, when my daughter was 24, she came back to us and to God and she said, Mom, I wanted to come home, but I was too ashamed. But some nights in the early hours of the morning, two or three o'clock in the morning, I'd come into our street and I'd sit in my car just outside your house. And every house in our street was dark apart from our house. And I knew you left the light on for me. Mm. And some Christmases I'd sit there in the darkness and I knew you put the Christmas tree there for me. And Nigel, I've said to parents all over the world, don't give up hope. Keep on praying. Always leave a light on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, well. Um, now, um, 
You recently had done a tour on how to speak publicly. Mm. <laughs> You've got a lot of experience of that. Um, and you've spoken extensively across the UK and overseas. What are some of the more extraordinary places you've spoken? I mean, you mentioned something about a jungle there. and Yeah, it, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, gosh, I, I, I've, I can remember running, bringing home the prodigals in a tin hut in the middle of U, U, Uganda. But at the same time, I've spoken several times in the Royal Albert Hall and, mm. and, and, and you know, the Birmingham Symphony Hall and the Scottish Exhibition Centre. So, so all <laughs> kinds of places all over the world. And, and some time ago, the president of Swaz, Land invited me in to speak to him and the whole of his cabinet for an hour based on my book, The Heart of Success. So he sat there with 20 of his cabinet on the table. I have an hour talking to him about The Heart of Success. And you pinch yourself, don't you? Yeah. Think, what on earth am I yeah, doing amazing. here? Amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. And you were awarded an OBE, I believe, in, in 2012. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Oh, it was, a, it, was a, it was amazing. Diane came with me and Katie and Lloyd too. And, uh, and the Queen was... was 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 delightful, oh. and and uh, you have a little chance to speak with her, and and I I said to her something that was on my heart. I said, um, uh, "Ma'am, may I humbly thank you for the incredible example you've been to us." And she said, "You're very kind," <laughs> but she has been. Yeah. She's been an incredible mm. example, mm. and so the whole thing was a, a experience. But you know, people talk about these things, and and they say, "Oh, it's a team effort," but. But it really is, isn't it? And and but it was it was it was lovely and it was an honour mm. and I was I was grateful and uh, uh, and I hoped uh, that care for the family will will uh, enjoy it too. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'd like to turn to um, the Bible. You you mentioned the Bible uh, as we've been talking. Um, obviously, this podcast from Precept were a ministry that's encouraging people to dig mm. into the Word of God. Mm. Why why is the Bible important to you? I do think it is a remarkable book. So on or off, I've been I've been reading the Bible the best part of seventy years, obviously, since I was since Miss Williams told me those early stories. I I just find I, I find it speaks to my heart. It encourages me. Do you know sometimes when Lloyd was a teenager, I used to ask him into my study. He used to call them study talks. And I'd say, look, son, I want to talk to you about this and about that and a little bit of discipline and that. And sometimes God gives me study talks. He calls me to him often through the Bible, often through through the Word. And, and I realize that I've I've overstepped the mark. I've taken him for granted. I've become foolishly proud. And, and so the Bible does that for me. Or at other times when my heart is breaking, I find comfort there and hope. It points me to another world more real uh, than this one. So on the last night before he died, he tells the disciples, his, his 12, um, three incredible facts that rocked their world. One of you will betray me. One of you will deny me, and I'm going to leave you now. And they say, well, where are you going that we can't come? And those incredible words, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And he lifts their eyes to another world. This book does that for me. Um, the characters are in there, the rich, rich characters. So I, I, do, I do love it. Um, mm. I don't say I, I, that I've always found it an easy book to read or easy to read regularly, but I, I read the Bible every day, a bit of it, and, and I think about it. So it's a precious book to me. Wonderful, wonderful. I mean, do you have a favorite 
um, Bible book within the Bible? One, or, I, uh, I think if I could only have one, I'd probably have Luke's gospel. Luke's, Luke portrays Jesus as the saviour of the world. And uh, written, of course, by a Gentile. And uh, um, and I, I can remember years ago, we preached our way. We're preaching our way through Luke's gospel now in our, in our church, but I've been at church for 40 years. <laughs> um, uh, incidentally, there's a fascinating verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, don't say, why were the old days better than this? It is not wise to ask such questions. The Christmases were Christmassy. The, the, the trains ran on time. Sometimes people said, oh, isn't it a pity the church wasn't as it used to be? I say, I was there at the beginning. Trust me, it wasn't that great. <laughs> Don't say, I've been in that church. And, and I can remember preaching my way through Luke's gospel. And, and we're doing it again now. And, and the stories of Jesus. My wife reads the Bible in a lovely way. She imagines she's there. She imagines she's there. Mm. She can she can hear Galilee lapping. She she can smell the grass on the Mount of Beatitude. She mm. she imagines the hustle and bustle of the mm. crowd and uh, and uh, so so I I love the Gospels and I love Luke's Wonderful. Gospel particularly. Wonderful. Have you been to Israel yourself? I have many times. Have you? Yeah, fantastic. Mm. What about a favorite um, Bible verse? Is there a verse particularly that? Yeah, it's it's because I've spent so much of my life thinking about prodigals. Um, well, it's the story of the boy who breaks his father's heart. And he goes away and he wastes all the money. And, and one day he's in a pigsty and, and the money's gone and his friends are gone. And he thinks, I want to go home. And he makes up a little speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. And he begins the long walk home. What he doesn't know is every day since he left, the old boy's been looking down the road. And when he sees him coming, he runs. And this is my favorite verse, if you want one. The Bible puts it like this. But when he was a long way off, his father saw him and ran towards him and threw his arms around him. And the boy begins his speech, but he never finishes it. <laughs> father, I've sinned against him and against you, but no, no, no. Put a robe on his back and a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. My boy's home. It's a remarkable story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is um, next for Rob Parsons? Obviously, you're you're um, still speaking. I'm guessing, yeah, and traveling, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, what what's ahead for you? Well, you know, I I kind of like that story of um, of Caleb. Um, uh, he's 85 years old, and he comes to Joshua, and he says, "And they're in the promised land." And he says, look, I was with the old guy in, in the wilderness and, uh, and I was one of the, the, the good spies that came back with a good report. And it's true I'm 85 years old, but, but I'm still pretty strong and I'm ready to have a crack at the Philistines, so give me that mountain. <laughs> and, and we're in this lovely staging care of the family. We've just appointed a brand new CEO, uh, um, Robin Vincent. We've got a team of people now who speak for us. Um, so so, so we got what people say to me, when are you going to retire? I think they really mean is when are you going to die? But we got <laughs> loads of people to take the ministry on but mm. honestly so long as there's breath in my body uh i'll i'll speak and i'll write if, if i if i possibly if i possibly can so i've just got a book coming out now next month in march on communication it's called the heart of communication hmm. how to really connect with an audience I, i'm in the middle of a tour on that because i I've had 50 years' experience of speaking both in the faith world, churches, but mm. a lot in the business world as well. Yeah. Many blue-chip companies, 
Royal College of Surgeons, you know, big insurance companies, government sometimes. Mm. And I've learned some lessons down those yeah. years, some of them the hard way. And I want to share those with people, particularly in the faith community. So whether you're running a Sunday school class or a house group or speaking to 10,000 people, here are some lessons that I think may make you more effective. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Well, I'm sure you've got many more years ahead of you. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, take this opportunity to thank you personally uh, on behalf of uh, Molly and myself for uh, the investment that we have received from you over the years. And uh, I just pray God blesses you in, in the years ahead and, and Diane as well. And um, thank you so much for uh, being on the Bible and Me podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute privilege. Thank you, Nigel, very much. You've been listening to Series 6 of the Bible and Me podcast by Preset Ministries. If you enjoyed what you heard, we would love it if you could leave a rating or review. For more information on the inductive study method or any of our online resources or downloads, please visit www.precept.org.uk. But until next time, thank you for listening.